Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, every time we open up your word, there are things that you want to communicate with us. And how lovely it is that you have written us the love letters um, that compose the Bible. And they're not just for the times in which they were written, they're for, they're for now, they're for us to, to glean from and to gain from and to learn from. And I just pray for our study in your word tonight, um, that you would order things the way you want them. And also, Lord, for, for these gathered here and these listening, that you would order things in their lives the way that you want to as well. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into it. So the book of Esther, if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll go ahead and start right at the top. And I'll jump into some historical details kind of as we go, as we go through. So Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, so we're now getting down to some specifics, some of the, the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media. So that's, that's the, the, the nation state that he's the king of, Medo-Persia. And we'll get into what was that, when did that exist in just a moment. The nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom, so he's showing off, to all these people that have gathered before him. Showed them the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So we begin with a giant, giant, giant half a year long party. Has anybody ever been to a party that lasted more than a day? Cesar, probably, yes. <laughs> so there are two-day-long parties. There are sometimes people have weddings in certain cultures that are two and three days long. You ever heard of a party that lasted five days, six days, seven days? There's the carnival, of course, that you just kind of were referencing. But this is 180. Now, just to put that in, in, in context, it's not really like where they were just partying for 180 days. This was really more of a kind of a state-run uh, kind of political party. So he was, he was the ruler of this giant region in the world known as Medo-Persia. And just to kind of give you a, a kind of a geographical sense, um, that's going to go from like uh, Greece, that's kind of the border on the, uh, the western side, all the way to India, 
We have the Middle East here, so Jerusalem. And then even down into North Africa. North Africa. So when we read in the text that there were 127 provinces, yeah, that's like 127 states or nation states that comprise this whole area. And you know, this 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 area of the world has been conquered and reconquered and reconquered and conquered again so many times. The uh, Mediterranean Sea, of course, kind of in the midst of it. Um, this is also known as the, uh, the, the land of, not only for Medo-Persia, or the Medes and the Persians, but before this, the, the nation that, that um, ruled this area was Babylon. You guys all heard of Babylon? Babylon the Great, right? We, we read about that in the book of Revelation. Um, Babylon was the, the ruling uh, nation just before the Medes and the Persians. And before that, it was conquered by the Assyrians. In fact, the Assyrians took over uh, Jerusalem, which of course is right in the midst of all this stuff, in 722 BC. And then the Babylonians took over Jerusalem in 586 BC. And then now we are in a period here with the Medo-Persians that's around 480 BC. So that's kind of when the book of Esther uh, is, 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 is taking place. Around the 480, maybe 485, 486 is when it starts. And this guy that we were reading about, King Ahasuerus, he has another name historically that you have probably heard more commonly. His name is Xerxes. You guys heard of Xerxes? So this is Xerxes I, or also known as Xerxes the Great. And uh, he was uh, a, a, a ruler of the, of the region. And he took over from his father, Darius I, Darius the Mede, who was then the, um, the son of Cyrus. Does anybody remember the, the guy named Cyrus? Okay, so Cyrus was the leader of the Medo-Persians. And Cyrus was responsible for actually conquering the Babylonians. Um, if you read in the book of Daniel, you'll hear of this man named Sheshbazar, and the Babylonians were taken over in a single night. Do you ever remember the, there's a great um, prophecy in Daniel, many, many um, tekel upharsin. And uh, that was a prophecy about the fact that the uh, Babylonian uh, land would be given to another. That, that tra translates in scripture to you have been weighed and found wanting. And interestingly enough, that last word, uparsin, actually has to do, it's kind of like a play on words of the name Persia. So there's this interesting tie-in. So anyhow, a little bit of historical backdrop there. So this is the reign of, of Xerxes. And now getting back to the text, Xerxes has invited all of the nation leaders of these provinces that he is the head of for a 180-day party. Now, why would you do that? You certainly would have to have a reason beyond just he likes to party. I mean, this is not just that simple. Um, and the reason, as most scholars um, presume, 
is that he was trying to convince all these people. And we we notice in the text, he says, when he showed them the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty, I'm going to show you the splendor of my excellent majesty. Yeah, that's, that's pretty braggadocious, right? You're trying, it's like a used car salesman kind of technique. I'm trying to sell you on my power. I'm trying to sell you on sticking with my kingdom that I'm, I'm the ruler over. And we also find out that Xerxes, um, throughout his lifetime, uh, tried a number of times to conquer the Greeks. The Greeks were also in power, and actually, just following Medo-Persia, as I, as I put up here on the board, the next great empire coming up was the empire of Greece under Alexander the Great. This would be in the 330s BC. Again, we're in the 480s. And he fought with Greece, and he was actually planning through this party to try to get everybody to see that, yes, he was the powerful main dude, and they should join him in a war campaign. His father, Darius, had lost a number of times to the Greeks, and he wanted to kind of get payback. And we'll see a little bit later in the text, there's actually another event that happens with the Greeks that has to do with how this unfolds. Okay, so that's the kind of general historical background. Actually, one last little thing before we move on. I I wrote up here these two different histories because I think it's helpful for us to understand when this stuff happened in world history. So world history, again, the Assyrians came before 722, then the Babylonians, 586, now Medo-Persia, around 486, a little before that and then Alexander the Great, which was thereafter. And after that, of course, was the Romans, and then the Romans came during the time of who? Jesus, right? So just so we kind of understand these things historically. But it wasn't just the world history, it was also the history of the Jews. Where were the Jews at this time? We're studying right now on Sunday mornings in the book of Deuteronomy, which is at the end of the first five books of the Bible, right? The Pentateuch. And of course, just following that, we are arriving in the book of um, Joshua, right? So we're ending the time of Moses, and we end into Joshua. After Joshua, we have the period of the judges. After the judges, anybody know what comes next? It's the, um, it's the period of the kings, so beginning with Saul and David, At the end of the period of the, and I'm going through this very quickly, so try to track with me. I'm just trying to give a little bit of context. So after the period of the kings, right? First Chronicles, second Chronicles, first Kings, second Kings, first Samuel, second Samuel, all those things. The Jewish people went into captivity for 70 years. They went into the land. They were captured by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They went into captivity for 70 years. We're told biblically that that's because they did not observe the Sabbath for actually 490 years. And so the Lord said, I'm going to cause my land to rest because you didn't do the rest I told you to do. That captivity was in Babylon. Now, as we are in now the book of Esther, we are in a post-captivity era. So the Medo-Persians have taken over Babylon the, uh, the Jewish people are now allowed to go back into Jerusalem. And in fact, right, uh, right when Esther begins, about 40 years before, 
Ezra had taken a number of Jews uh, in the book of of Ezra back to build the temple. And then about 40 years later after Esther, um, the uh, Nehemiah is, is taking the people to go and build the wall to protect Jerusalem. So Esther, for the Jews, is snuck right in between the beginnings of getting back into their homeland. They had been given their homeland. They were um, removed from it. Now they're on their way back. Not all the people, though, that were in captivity wanted to go back to Jerusalem for a number of reasons. Um, Probably the foremost being that... um, a lot of the Jews actually did quite well when they were in captivity. They weren't in captivity in the terms of like they were just only slaves. They were actually given a lot of freedom. And we know through archeological evidence that um, a lot of the Jews actually were quite successful. And they were successful in Babylon, they were successful in Medo-Persia. And this city that we're reading about here in Shushan, I'm gonna write this down here, Shushan, which is also known as Susa, is pretty close to Babylon. Now this is all currently, this is, not, this, is, this is a terrible map, by the way. This is what we call, don't reference this map ever, but uh, it's kind of a loose conglomeration. Babylon and Susa are in modern day Iran. That's where Babylon is currently. And Susa was quite close to where the captives were taken. So the Jews at this time, some of them have decided to go back to Jerusalem for the building, rebuilding of the temple, uh, for the rebuilding of the walls. We've been studying this in our Friday night fellowship, right? Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we were reading about the genealogies, right? I always look to Steve because he just loves genealogies. Um, that's a joke. Uh, but we read about them because those, those are the people who did decide to go back. Esther, as we will be reading about shortly, is part of a group of Jews who decided to stay in Medo-Persia, to stay there as foreign people. And as we will read, the main verse of this whole book is, for such a time as this. Why did they decide to stay? Well, let's get now back into the story. So we read about King Xerxes, Ahasuerus. That's the same guy, just so we're, we're all clear for those who, who have just recently come. Uh, Xerxes has, has given this 180-day party to convince the provinces, the people who he ruled over, to be uh, part of his military campaigns against Greece. And it says, picking up in verse five, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. Now, isn't that interesting? They just had a 180 day feast and they're like, what should we do now? Macaroni and cheese, margaritas? Let's have another party. So I, I chuckled quite a bit reading through that, that portion of the text. So now this is probably a more local party though. That, that one was like kind of for visiting dignitaries in over 180 days, they would kind of come in, come out. It's more, more of those kind of parties, you know. Um, uh, okay, so the, the king now made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, that's Susa, the citadel, and this is where the king's winter palace was. From great to small, 
the, the, the people that being that, that is, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And now we read about a little bit about what this palace was like and what the kind of uh, really interesting uh, architecture was here. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. Who's got marble pillars in their homes? Steve. Steve, of course, yeah. As he's, as he's thinking of genealogies, he's carving marble pillars. I can just see it with, with a, with a if being fed grapes, of course, and He's a very hard worker while he's relaxing. He's an incredible guy. Just ask Julie. Marble pillars. And the couches were made of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Sounds luxurious, does it not? And it also sounds extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, like, give me a... Give me a nice air mattress any day of the week, as far as I'm concerned. And they served drinks in golden vessels, so they're sparing no expense in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity to the king. So there was a lot of drinking going on here. In accordance with the law, now this is an important thing. Notice, notice here the, the, the use of the term law and 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 what it exactly means at this time, because it's very important. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. They weren't required to drink. Um, For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So the, the law and the king is very important because whatever he dictated to be actual law could not be revoked. This is very, very important as we read through Esther. It's not like with us where we, we can make a law and like we've just done in the last couple of weeks, we've decided this is, a, this is not a good ruling, this is not a good thing, and they revoked the law. That did not exist in this time. That did not exist in this kind of perception of law. Once the king spoke it, it was a ruling. And we'll see why that's so important as we, as we move on through the chapters. Now we read about a second character, Queen Vashti, verse 9. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes. So she has a second party going on for just all the ladies. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now, what do you think that means? What? Yes, no. Isn't it, the Bible is rather quite understated with people's sins, isn't it? Don't you find that, that pretty interesting? He could have just said, drunk as a, as a goat, or whatever the saying is. That's, that's, that's not the, the saying. Drunk as a skunk. There it is, yeah. I always mess up the simple sayings. You should know that about me. I'm always kind of mixing metaphors, and my, and my wife just does this a lot, looking at me. It's a wonderful uh, time in my home. Okay, so yes, he is... Merry with wine. He's, he is drunk, and, and, and you'll see what he does. So he was merry with wine, verse 10, and he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass. Carcass. What a name, right? Carcass. Yeah. Probably a hunter. Oh, come on, guys. Carcass. Seven eunuchs. So, of course, these would be people who were in some way um, uh, either castrated or, or, or kept from being sexual. 
Uh, sorry, it's just kind of a, a disgusting, but it's part of it's part of history. What eunuchs were. It's why they 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 did this so that they wouldn't be able to harm the people around them. You know. Anyhow, I'm not going to get into that much. So there are seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Now, he gets these guys, he commands these guys to go and do what? He, in verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, so in all her glory, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to Behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs, and therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Let's address a couple of things going on here. First of all, when you're merry with wine, <laughs> you tend not to make the wisest decisions. And when we see this here, we see a really unwise decision, right? To parade his wife in front of all of his guests. Now, Queen Vashti, she was probably the queen, in another language known as Queen Amestris. Amestris. Um, and in the studies I, I did, I found out that she actually gave birth to a son who was known as Artaxerxes, guess what year she gave birth to this son? In the same year that this was happening. 483 BC. So he began his rule in his reign in 46, three years later into the reign. We see that at the beginning of the text in chapter one. Three years in, he has this giant party, and then this second party, and then she has another party. Are they party people? Just a little bit. 483, Queen Amestris, same as Queen Vashti, has been, is, 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 is pregnant. She gives birth to a son named Artaxerxes. Now, this is the same Artaxerxes that we read about in Nehemiah. So, when you think about who she was and what she was going through at this time, either pregnant or having just given birth, or somewhere in that process. I don't care how you talk about it, whether you're in the middle, at the end, six months later, that whole year and a half is a year that's really private, isn't it? And so you can imagine the insult and injury of being either pregnant or having just given birth and then being told by your husband, no matter I don't care what kind of king is. A pregnant woman is not going to allow her husband to do something just creepy and strange, right? And so it makes sense when you learn historically about what was probably going on in her life that she was, had, or was or had just been with child. And you can understand now why she would refuse. Now, obviously, uh, she would have been within her rights to refuse anyways. This was a terrible request. This was not an honoring request at all. Um, this was not treating his wife with any kind of dignity and respect. We, are, we know that in, in the Bible, and just to kind of touch on this, because marriage is always applicable in marriage teaching, so I'm just going to throw this out here. Um, the, the, the wife and the, and the husband are always supposed to be involved in the process of the husband loving the wife, the wife respecting the husband. The minute that is broken, 
The minute one decides, oh, I'm not going to love, or the other one decides, I'm not going to respect, the whole thing falls apart. And we will see that it does, in fact, do that here. Now, the king was furious. So the king, not the wisest character, obviously, um, Mary with wine and decision-making uh, was impeded by this as well. He was furious. His anger burned within him. So he decides to do something about this. Read with me now from verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew law and justice. So he's seeking counsel. Those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, that's again Medo-Persia, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. And he said to them this, what shall we do to Queen Vashti? What am I supposed to do in this situation? According to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And of course, if you were to disobey a command of the king, guess what the results of that usually were according to the law? Banishment and death. Now you will notice, we'll, we'll notice here that that obviously doesn't happen actually. So that's kind of an interesting thing as well. Let's read what does happen. Um, and Mimukin, uh answered before the king and their princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior, and this is, this is their worry, right? They're, they're saying, what's going to happen? What is going to be the, the snowball effect of all these things? For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. And you can see them kind of creating this whole, and talking about this whole social structure. What's going to happen to our society? What's going to happen to our women? And, you know, I think it's kind of interesting. Yes, I think it's, it's in some ways, it's actually appropriate to address the issue. Like, what, what is, what are women supposed to, how are they supposed to behave with their husbands? Um, but the conclusions that they're coming to here are rather kind of odd if you think about them, that all the women are only looking at the queen for the behavior of their own homes. Come on. You know, people have been independently minded since the beginning of time. And so I think what they're thinking is giving a little bit too much credence to just what the king or queen do. But anyhow, this is still their concern, and they're kind of voicing that this is how they see uh, society. So it's kind of an interesting commentary on that. Um, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. And if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. So he's saying, so make a law. And this is the law that they're suggesting. And let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. Notice that it will be not be altered if it becomes a law. Uh, let's see, not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So their, their, their simple solution is, let's, let's say she's lost the queenship. She cannot be queen. But notice that they don't talk about like sending her into exile. That could have been something that has been done throughout all kinds of kings and queens and kingdoms. They don't talk about murdering her or killing, getting rid of her or her 
children. That was something that obviously very often happened historically as well. So there's, there's, there's interesting details here about why they decided this and not something more drastic. And I don't know exactly what that was. They were, uh, you can only crawl inside people's heads so much in a, uh, in a, in a Bible study. Only, only go with what the Lord reveals. So anyhow, um, when the king's decree, I'm picking up in verse 20, when the king's decree which he, which he will make is proclaimed throughout all of his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands both great and small. That's it. The easiest way to make wives honor their husbands is just to say, we're making a law, and everybody's just going to do it. Hmm. Do you think that worked? I think it's a little bit more involved than that, don't you? But again, it shows you a little bit about their mindset. They think that what they've ruled on high is going to just follow on down the pike. So finishing up verse, uh, verse uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 22, uh, 21. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces. So again, we're, you're talking about a giant you know, mailing campaign, right, to the 127 provinces and all their languages and all the people who ruled there, the ones who were just at the giant party. Okay, we've got another law for you guys. And to each province in its own script, its own language, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So that's the setup of the study of, of uh, the book of Esther, the first chapter. Um, let's go on into chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, we begin, obviously, in verse 1. It says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, that he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, skip ahead with me just a little bit to a middle verse of this text. Um, let's see here. Oh, yes, verse 16. So I'm going to kind of uh, give, you, give a little bit of this away here, just so we know where we are historically. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Seventh year. So um, again, Xerxes began ruling around 486. Three years later, which is 483, he had this giant party and this giant problem. And then now we're four years later than that, seventh year of his reign, we're talking around 479 BC. I know you guys are going to put this on your Facebooks later tonight. <laughs> right? Guess what happened in 479 B.C.? And no one will reply. <laughs> I know how history knowledge is. But just to put it out there, for, so 483 is the party, and then that's, that's chapter 1, CH1. 479 is chapter 2, and the king now is remembering. Now, before we get into any more, I just need to fill in a couple of historical details. Kind of like with... Um, like with uh, Queen Amestris and her pregnancy. Something has happened in these four years, which is quite interesting. Remember how I told you before that the Medo-Persians wanted to take the land of the Greeks and wanted to conquer them? Well, again, uh, uh, Xerxes' father, Darius, had been, had been humiliated a number of times in attacking a number of cities as they approached Greece. 
within these years, or actually at, in 480 BC, so just before this, Xerxes had gotten his guys together and attacked Greece again. And they almost got him. But at the end, they didn't. And so he's actually probably just now returning from a giant war campaign in which he has failed. So, and even as a king, you have to have a little bit of, you know, understanding of when you've won and when you've lost. So this is a little bit of like chapter two is kind of like a king with his tail between his legs, proverbially, all right? So, and it says here that after these things, when the king had, the, his, his wrath had subsided, and what was he doing? He was remembering his wife. He was remembering the queen, Queen Vashti. Probably like, eh, those days weren't all that bad. You ever had that where you kind of look back on a certain period and you're like, in the time you may be like, oh, that was, was intenser. But, but then years later, you kind of have a different perspective because of the things you've gone through. Xerxes is having kind of one of these moments of looking back and remembering uh, Queen Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. We're not told, is he like upset? Is he thinking, maybe I shouldn't have done that? You know, maybe drinking that much wine at the party wasn't the good, a bit the best idea? Does he have a moment of clarity, as we say? You know, I, I, as, as much as we can read into the text, it is clear that he has, is having some kind of moment of clarity, right? Okay, so anyhow, he's, he's come back from a military defeat and then in verse two, we pick up here. Then it says, then the king's servants who attended him said, this is their response to seeing his, his kind of behavior. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, again, that's Susa, the, the citadel, into the women's quarters or the places where the women lived, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who please, then let the young woman, excuse me, so the one that he chooses, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king and he did so. So what's going on here? They see that he's like kind of remembering this with some kind of fondness, and they're like, why don't we get you a new bride? And this makes him very happy. Now, obviously, the way in which they're picking a new bride for him is completely unethical on every single level. They're basically conscripting young women to enter into a king's harem to, to, to try to please the king. I mean, it's just... it's. It's kind of in, in, incredible that these things even existed, but this is part of human history, unfortunately. And of course, when the king hears this, this is not a king who is known for his holiness or his, his generosity or the fact that he is uh, uh, treating people well. He hears this and it pleases him. He's a completely fleshly man, right? This is just who Xerxes was, right? And so he's like, Hey, sounds good to me. You know, he's just, he's just going right along with the program. Um, now, this is where the chapter then gets interesting because we're now introduced to our new characters. In Shushan the Citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai. The son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, 
a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Let me just kind of unpack this for a little bit. So remember we talked before about the people after the period of the kings were taken into captivity. One of the people that was taken was the, this, this man, um, Mordecai, who was a descendant of Kish. Kish was the father of Saul. You guys remember Saul? So this is like, this is a, this is like um, way back in his ancestry, not just, just like one or two generations removed. So he is actually a relative of Saul. It's kind of interesting. A Benjamite. Saul was of the family of the Benjamites. Um, and of course, we also read here about this interesting thing with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, I told you before, Babylon are the ones who, who took captive the people of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and so now we read that Mordecai is one of these guys who was actually taken captive, and he is now in the city of Shushan because that's where they took him. Um, you don't have a lot of control when you're being take, taken captive, although, like I said before, they did eventually have some freedoms and ability to prosper there. My coffee is out. This is not a good sign, but I'm going to keep going. Okay. Now, Okay, verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. So now we're introduced to another character. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter. So she's actually his cousin. Most likely a much younger cousin, right? You know, you've got cousins. You know, sometimes the cousins can be much older or much younger than you. Um, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So in the midst of all this kind of chaos of Queen Vashti and Xerxes, and what kind of person was Xerxes, and what kind of ruling kingdom was Medo-Persia, we have these two individuals that are in the midst of this giant story that now become the focal points. And I just want to point these things out. Esther... Her name means, Esther is the, is the Persian term. It means star. What does a star do? It shines in the darkness. Hadassah means myrtle. It comes from the, the myrtle tree, which uh, the bloom of it, of course, like with a lot of flowers, also looks like a star. And there are some interesting tie-ins uh, in scripture uh, where the word myrtle and myrtle tree um, are, are found. Let me just kind of look this up real quick. Um, oh yes, in prophetic symbolism, the myrtle tree would replace the briars and thorns of the desert, so depicting the Lord's forgiveness, excuse me, and acceptance of his people. In fact, in Isaiah 55, it says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. So there's this idea of kind of redemption. And again, like with the star shining in the darkness. So just kind of an interesting things about her name, Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name, and Esther, which is her Persian name. So here she is. Um, and so she is in the midst of this foreign entity. She's an orphan. She's being raised by her cousin, uh, her cousin is, is watching over her, has, has taken upon himself quite, quite the activity 
in, in raising this young lady. And I think what, what strikes me the most about this is that, again, reading about all the other social things that we were just talking about, here we have this beautiful little, like, again, star in the darkness of compassion, beauty, um, wanting to save and watch over the lesser. And I just, when I read these sentences, and I, I see them again, when they come out of the text from what had happened before, and what had just been told about, oh, our plan is to get a, a harem of young ladies. And, and then you hear, well, but there were these other characters here as well. I think it's just a beautiful moment within the text. Okay, so continuing on. Uh, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. I, I just read that. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So picking up verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. These girls did not have a chance. They, when they, they were seen in public, and they were taken. Isn't that absolutely crazy? Does that happen now? That happens now, doesn't it? Maybe not in the same way. History, it happens in worse ways now. Trafficking. Now, I don't mean to bring that up as a giant topic within this, but it is interesting to note that's exactly what was happening. They were just seeing who were the most beautiful um, young uh, virgins that they could find and saying, you come with me. And they had no choice. They had no choice. Um, and I think, you know, this is a time also to remember, uh, especially for the ladies, the issue of beauty is a double-edged sword on this earth. Uh, beauty is something that is often celebrated in, in women. It's something that, that women can, and can, can use to their advantage but it has a dark side as well. Your beauty is also connected to the vanity of whoever looks upon you. And so beauty has this dark side because it can attract the darkness, right? And so we always must be careful with the issue of beauty that we, we kind of keep it at arm's length, so to speak. That we don't, we don't treat it as an attribute that is greater or more important than any other attribute of a person, and especially with women. If you've ever thought to yourself, I wish, I wish I were more beautiful. I wish I were more handsome. I wish I were more... Don't. <laughs> don't. Be content with, with who you are and what you are because very often something that is incredibly beautiful comes with an incredible weight and burden. And we will see that actually with Queen Esther. Because of her beauty and her, her loveliness, she has to go through quite the test. Now, picking up in verse 9, now the young woman pleased him... Um, Yes, the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor so that he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people, which were the Jews, or family for Mordecai had charged her not 
to reveal it. Now, let me stop here for a second as well. So, she is obtaining favor because of her beauty, but we also read because of her character. But, and you maybe have noticed this, or maybe you've heard this in other commentaries, the, the book of Esther is very unique in scripture because it does not contain the word God or Yahweh or anything of that nature. The only thing that it gets to as far as pointing to the people of, of Israel is that they use the word Jews. Now there are a lot of reasons why that could possibly be. Maybe this was obviously written when they were in a foreign territory. Maybe they had to be very careful about the writing of it. Uh, there are those who actually say that, that God's name is actually hidden within the text, within certain verses. If you look at the first and last verse, uh, uh, letters of certain verses, that you can actually find it hidden, the, the name Yahweh. But I think probably the most important thing is that there is sometimes a time to reveal who you are and whose you are, right? In this case, the people of Yahweh, the people of God. And there is also a time to keep it concealed. Think about, for example, when you are in conversation with, with someone and you may be thinking to yourself as a Christian, should I share the gospel with this person or should I, do I need to love on this person in a specific way or, or, or and maybe entertain some kind of ministry effort here? Sometimes you may get a kind of sense from the Holy Spirit, not now. Now is not the time. Then again, you may be given from the Holy Spirit, yes, go ahead and speak. But our job is to be listening so we know when the time is right. And I think timing is a really big feature of evangelism. It's also a big feature of what we read about in this text. So she has been commanded by Mordecai, and she obviously looks up to him, to not reveal who her people are at this time. Oh, I, I read an interesting uh, commentary on this by uh, the great Bible commentary, Matthew Henry. He said this about truth. All truth are not to be spoken at all times, though an untruth is not to be spoken at any time. Isn't that interesting? All, truth, all truths are not to be spoken at all times, though an untruth is not to be spoken at any time. Moving on. Verse 11. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of, of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So he was obviously very concerned and he, he knew what she was getting into when she was taken. And he was pacing in front of you. You can kind of imagine just, you know, what's going on. Any word of Esther? No. Okay. Oh, oh her name is Hadassah. Lunch, okay. And, and then kind of, he's pacing. You know what it's like when you pace, right? The, the person's not quite home from the hospital yet. And you're like, you're like, you know, that's pacing. You know, pacing has worry with it. I'm sure all the moms in the room know that. So he's pacing every day to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. And each young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh. Six months? Six months, beauty spa? It sounds nice, right? Sounds nice, right? Six months. I don't know. After about day three of being like oiled down, I think it'd be like, uh, 
I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And I'm going to go get my feet in the, in the sand again. So six months with just oil, and then six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now, there is a reason why it was 12 months. They wanted to make sure, and it, was, it wasn't just like only just crazy elaborateness, which of course it does seem like in the text, it's to make sure that none of them were with, were with child, were pregnant. They wanted to make sure that none of these were, were not virgins before they went into the king. So they are thinking about this. Thus prepared, verse 13, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So she was allowed to dress herself to make her appear a certain way. Do you know how like in, in sometimes in beauty pageants, there's this portion, there's like a talent portion where they get to do something, you know, they're like, I'm really good at badminton. And it's like, who cares? But... <laughs> Well, or, 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 or I play the banjo really well. And like, oh, that's cool. Um, so she's kind of like this. And we see a glimpse of her character. It says, um, in the evening she went, and this is whoever she is, and in the morning she returned. So obviously this is a lascivious affair, okay? There's, there's, no, there's no getting around that. Uh, he was uh, with these women. Um, and she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz. Imagine coming home to Shashgaz. Hey, Shashgaz, how's it going? I'm back. Um, sorry, that's just such a great name, right? Anybody want to name their, their, their friends, cousins, their friends' kids Shashgaz? The next time you go to a, a baby shower, Shashgaz, you know, just pull them aside and be like, hey, you know, I'm not sure. You may have been thinking like Esther, Jennifer, Julie, but how about Shashgaz? Shashgaz. It's a guy's name anyway, sorry. So the king's eunuch who kept the concubines, and she would not go into the king again, so she wouldn't be allowed to go back unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now notice that she's supposed to go back a second time if he likes her. Um... Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, so this is the first time that we hear about who her father was. Her father's name is Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king. She requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the woman, advised. And this is where we see some of her character. She's letting herself in this situation kind of being, you know what, I'm here maybe for a reason, Whatever you suggest. And this is part of her beauty that is not the beauty of externals. And I want to really point this out. This is a really beautiful feature of who she was as a woman. She was one who would listen and take advice to those who were around her. And it got her very far. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther, verse 16, was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So he's gone through his, uh, his military defeat, and now he's seeing Esther the, for the first time. And it says in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And what did he do? Did he send her back and then call for her a second time? No. What did he do? So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen. 
right then, right there, instead of Vashti. So he was just like, this is the one. You're queen now. He didn't, we don't read that he asked her, would you like to be my queen? He just, bam, queen. Now, kind of interesting. Then the king, verse 18, made a great feast, the feast of Esther, imagine that, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Now again, who was Esther? An orphan, a foreigner, an immigrant. And within a matter of, of years, in this one interesting situation, she is now the queen of the land. It's a pretty incredible journey for this young lady. To finish up the chapter, let's read now, in beginning in verse 19, just for a few more verses. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, so this does tell us that the ladies that he had gathered, he was not interested in really getting rid of. They were just part of his harem. That's a really sad place for these young ladies. That means they had to stay. They got the six months of oil. That was probably pretty good, aside from the greasiness. Um, <laughs> but now, the rest of their lives they were just in this harem to be called upon whenever he wanted. That is not a life that I don't think anybody would really want. That's, that's, a, that's a crazy, creepy life. But, so they were gathered together a second time. And now we read of this interesting part of verse 19. When Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Within. Before we read that he was pacing back and forth. And let me see what verse that was in. Verse 11, every day Mordecai paced in front of the court. That means he was outside the gate. Now he's within. Obviously, at some point, because of the appointment of Esther, she has either recommended him, whether she's told him that, uh, uh, Xerxes, that this was her, her cousin or somebody she respected. At some point now, he's, he's been allowed in to have place of privilege himself within the court of the king. Um, now, Esther, again... Verse 20, we read this a second time. Now, Esther had not revealed her family, so she still hasn't told who she was, who she's descended from, that she's part of the captivity of the people that come from Jerusalem, from the land of Israel and Judah. Just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So she's still in reverence towards Mordecai. Now, remember, she is the wife of the king, but she's still in reverence to the one who raised her. That's, again, this is a part of the character of Esther that shows through in the text. Not a perfect character, we're not, we're not saying anything of that nature, but it shows who she was in a more three-dimensional way. It wasn't just a beauty queen. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, so again, he's inside, he's on the inside, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, <laughs> great, great names again, right? I, Big Than, this Teresh, we guards. You know, that kind of, that's kind of, <laughs> I think about those like far side cartoons with like the, the uh, ne Neanderthal, you know, the beginning of Neanderthal language. Me, Tarzan, you, Jane, Jane. Jane. we, <laughs> love, 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 rope, tree, <laughs> marriage. <laughs> Harem? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, so these guys, they were the doorkeepers. 
they became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, we're not told why, but it's a possibility. So I'm just putting this out there. I don't, I'm not for sure about this. It's very possible that they um, were Medo-Persian, and they saw this foreign person coming in and being the queen, and they didn't like it. So they're like, we've got to take this guy out. Um, so they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, again, the Bible is understated, right? So making merry with wine equals drunk. To lay hands on a king means to murder the king. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't a massage, right? This was not a laying out of hands as we read about in the, in the New Testament. You know, they, they were praying for him. Yeah, 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 right. Let's get, let's get King Xerxes slain in the spirit. You know, this was not the, not the, not the goal of what... what Bigdan and Teresh, mm, spiritual leaders, pray with you, we shall. He, they spoke like Yoda, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I, no, they, they didn't, I'm just, yes, you know me. So the matter became known to Mordecai, so he overheard this because he was now inside the gate. Um, and he told, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So she's communicating the fact that this, this, uh, this, attempt, this, this attempt for murder is now known, and she tells, um, tells Xerxes, he informs him, in Mordecai's name. She, she gives him Mordecai's name. She, doesn't reveal, she still hasn't revealed her people, just the name. Um, and when an inquiry was made, so they obviously investigated this. They're like, was that, is that really true? Big, big Than, Teresh, Big Than, Teresh, get down here. Is it true you wanted to murder me? Oh, yes. So sorry. No, I, I'm not sure how that, that... It could have been like that. I don't know. Sometimes people admit things. Um, it was confirmed that this was actually what they were trying to do. And both were hanged on a gallows. So they were, they were laid out. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that's where we will uh, stop for tonight. Um, so that's the introduction to the book of Esther, the first two chapters. Uh, we are now left at this kind of wonderful cliffhanger. Um, Mordecai has discovered a plot. He's, he's proved himself to be uh, worthy. And this is one more interesting thing. I'll just leave you with this before we, we pray um, and, um, and, and kind of hang out a little bit together. Um, just like Esther... Mordecai is also showing his character here. Think about it. Again, he has been a captive, right? He has come into this area. He sees the, the girl that he raised, right? He raised this girl by himself, an orphan. And he's seen her just being taken by the foreign king. Now, think about if you were Mordecai and you saw this daughter that you loved and you cherish, you took care of her, be taken by the king. Now, he, she became queen, so she kind of, she got pretty good, pretty good deal. But don't you think part of your heart would kind of be like, that's not really what I wanted for this girl that I raised. But does he then hold that in his heart in a way where he will be unkind to the king? Does he, he could have heard about this and been like, this dude's about to get what he has coming to him. He doesn't respond that way. And that's very interesting. He goes out of his way um, to spare the life of a foreign king. 
Mordecai's character. Now we see more and more three dimensions of that. So both Mordecai and Esther obviously have a deeper sense of their purpose as, as, as human beings, as Jews, that they are, they, they are here. As, as we will read in chapter 4, they are here for such a time as this, although that has not quite come to the fore quite yet. And I would just end by just kind of a, a personal application. All of us, to some extent, are plopped down into these little places in world history, right? Just as she was here in, in Susa, in this one city that happened to be controlled by this one uh, uh, territory, that happened to be controlled by this one king, she did not choose that. She was placed there, and she had to make decisions, and so did Mordecai, about what do I do with where I have been placed? No one of us have any control about when we were placed into history. We only have control with what will we do now that we are here? What will we represent? And will we let all the the hurts, will we let all the things that we've gone through be the thing that defines us? We're going to just get a hard heart about it. We're going to, I, I was a, uh, you know, I was, I was orphaned and I was this and all this. And think of all the things, all the baggage that Esther could have claimed to be her identity. We don't hear a single thing about this. We see people who are taken into incredible situations and are making the decision, we are still going to do what is best for this foreign king. We are still going to do what is right. I'm still going to be not just beautiful on the outside, but I'm going to have character on the inside. That is a decision we all have to make every day. Who are you going to be? This is my challenge. Who are you going to be within the situation in which you are placed? Will all the things of your past come just rushing forward and, and, and keep you actually bound, keep you actually uh, prisoned? Or will you say, nevertheless, nevertheless, I will shine as a star in the darkness. I will be a budding myrtle to replace the thorns. And I think this is a beautiful thing that we are introduced to in this text. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your scriptures, your words, or that have such, such depth and yet also such singular application to our lives. Lord, we're thankful for the story of Esther, this, this young Jewish gal who marries this Gentile king. And we, we see the depth of who she is and the depth of Mordecai. And Lord, we just pray tonight that you will show us um, how to be like them, how to be stars in the darkness, and how to be bright lights wherever we are, no matter what we've come through. Lord, allow us to shine for thee. Whether your name is, is named all the time or not, let us have the timing of when to speak, when to act, that we may be like Esther in our time. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.